thing that we say a lot here at City Church, and I never want you to lose sight of, uh, said it even this morning, is that God will meet us right where we are in life. And what that means is that God will meet us in the messiness, and that God will meet us in the brokenness, uh, that the gospel is not a clean yourself up and then come to God's story, that the gospel is that God meets us right in the mire and the grime of everyday life, right? And the brokenness is where he meets us. Now, this truth, this idea that the gospel meets us right where we are, it plays itself out in the scriptures and in our everyday life in numerous ways, including with this idea that it is often after encounters with God or kind of spiritual experiences that those are often followed by the very harsh realities of everyday life. What, that, what I mean by that is often when you go through a mountaintop experience in life, a spiritual high or an encounter with God, and you're kind of at that high high in life, those seasons are often followed by very low seasons in life. The valley of the valleys, the low of the lows. And so the good news of the gospel is that it meets us in both of those spaces, in the highs of highs and in the lows of lows, that God meets us right where we are. And we see that so vivid in the story that we are in today in Mark's gospel. Last week, we were on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Peter and James and John hanging out on the mountain with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. That's pretty good company to keep. I would say that was a kind of a pinnacle, mountaintop, spiritual experience for Peter, James, and John. And then, as we see in our text today, they are immediately dropped back into the harsh reality of everyday life. And that's the text that we are in today. They are immediately kind of snapped back into reality. They leave the Mount of Transfiguration and are thrown right back into the harshness of life. And this is a common experience for biblical characters. We'll take just the three that were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses, after spending time with God on Mount Sinai and been and given the Ten Commandments, right? Remember that? He comes back down the mount, and what does he find? He finds a people that are filled with idolatry and rebellion to the point that he just smashes uh, the Ten Commands. I'm thinking those original smashed Ten Command stones are probably worth something on eBay today. But he smashes them. That's the harsh reality he was dealing with. Same thing with Elijah. Um, Elijah has this mountaintop experience where God rains fire from heaven and demolishes the altar right before Baal and all of his prophets and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. This huge God experience. And then just a few chapters later, we find him running for his life from Jezebel, hiding in a cave, trying to get away from the public eye. High, high, followed by a low, low. Even Jesus, remember the story of Jesus. Jesus is baptized, and at his baptism, the Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Gospels say immediately, he is driven out into the desert to be tempted by the enemy. High highs, pinnacle mountaintop experiences, followed by the lowest of lows. And so after experiencing this taste of heavenly glory, Jesus and Peter and James and John, they descend the mountain, and immediately they find themselves in the middle of chaos. 
in the middle of an argument between the scribes and the disciples who were left behind, in the middle of the story of a desperate father who is struggling with his own faith over his son who is literally fighting for his life, we are dragged back into, pulled back into this big picture story that God is writing. I mentioned this at the very beginning of this series. You probably have forgotten it by now because I've honestly almost forgotten it as well. But the story that God has been writing is we find all throughout Mark's gospel that God created the world, remember? And it was all good. Everything He created was good. And then immediately after creation, what happens? There's decreation. Uh, Everything turns from good to very bad. Sin enters the world and destruction begins to happen. And so we have creation and then we have decreation and then we have recreation, which is the story of God making all things new. That God creating a new heaven, a new earth, that the redemptive narrative is flowing toward that final stage of restoration, of recreation. And so the disciples and Jesus are thrown right back into this this redemptive story. That the things that God created that were good and whole and complete, destruction has entered. Sin has entered. And is destroying things that are healthy and good. And that's where Jesus and the disciples are. In that that stage of of decreation. And then Jesus comes along and recreates, right? He makes this boy whole. He makes him new again. So let's dive into the text and we'll walk through this. And then um, I want to bring full circle this whole story and talk about faith and doubt in the end because it's such an important concept in this story. Now, verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, there's a urgency in Mark's gospel. He over and over uses this word immediately. It's kind of the trigger word of the text. And immediately all the crowd when they saw him were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So these nine disciples who have been left behind that are not up on the Mount of Transfiguration but are still in the valley. They've not just been sitting around idly twiddling their thumbs, right? They're not like, I don't know, playing the switch or Paying, I don't know, what's a, a, a game that our older crowd would relate with? Dominoes. Any dominoes players out there? Get the hands up. Okay, I see. It's okay. They're not playing dominoes. They're not playing their Game Boy. That dates me right there. Game Boy. <laughs> Does Game Boy even exist anymore? They're not playing their little Switch or whatever the game is. They've not just been sitting around idly. No, they're in an argument, a full-blown argument. Jesus finds his disciples surrounded by these familiar groups that we have seen all throughout Mark's gospel. Surrounded by a crowd, surrounded by religious leaders, and the demon possessed. Like, I feel like at this point in our story, these three groups need a t-shirt or something, like hanging out with Jesus all the time. The crowds, the religious leaders, the demon possessed, they always seem to be there. And the people respond to Jesus' arrival with great excitement and amazement. They flock to Him again, the text says. Again, this common theme throughout the ministry of Jesus. He's constantly meeting needs, and the people are constantly flocking to where Jesus are to have their needs met. Verse 16, And He asked them, What are you arguing about with them? I've, I've used that phrase in my house a few times. What are you arguing about? What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down 
and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. What are you arguing about, Jesus says. This word arguing is a combative word. What are you verbally fighting about? Jesus asked the scribes and the disciples. The scribes nor the disciples answer. Who answers is a desperate father who has brought his son to be healed. He provides the answer to the question. This boy is possessed by an evil spirit who repeatedly assaults this child with epileptic-type seizures. He convulses, foams at his mouth, he grinds his teeth, he has violent spasms, a loss of consciousness by the end of the story. This helpless father is desperate, and we see why, right? Like, as a parent, I empathize with this father. See, this boy is not just sick. This boy is literally under attack. Can you imagine what this father is going through? Like, to watch his child being treated this way by a spirit outside of him who has possessed him and is wreaking physical havoc on this boy's life. Like, there's very few characters in the gospel narrative that find themselves in a more desperate place than this dad, this son that he loves and is raising to watch this happen to him. Some of you have had children that you've watched go through things, maybe a sickness or something going on in their life, and you've kind of had to watch, right, as a bystander to kind of watch what's happening and wishing that you could take it away and wishing that you could take the pain or the sickness away. Like, we've been there at a, as a parent. If you're a parent, at some level, you've experienced this. Some of you more harsh and severe than others, but we've all been there as parents to watch and understand the desperate place that this father is in. Uh, this weekend... Uh, the way that Ashley responds to stress, which we have a lot of in our life right now, is she um, sleeps a lot. More than normal, I'll add. Um, and so the way that I deal with stress is I don't sleep a lot. Um, more than normal. And so I stayed up and watched a movie, um, and she stayed up for three minutes and watched some of the movie, and then fell asleep, and I finished watching the movie, and the movie was about these 12 young soccer players in Thailand and their coach that were or trapped in this cave. Remember the story from about four or five years ago? And they've made a movie out of it now. It's on Amazon, I think. That's free publicity right there for Amazon. And so I watched this movie about these 13 lives, these 12 soccer players and their coach that were trapped deep in this cave, and if you know the story, a monsoon happened, and they find themselves trapped in the cave. They were all headed to a birthday party, and the one kid whose birthday party they were headed to, or the house they were headed to, he had to go home and help get ready for the party, and so he didn't go, and the other 12 kids go to this cave, it's like, hey, we're going to go explore the cave before we go to the birthday party, and so the floods hit, and they're trapped in this cave. And the one kid who did not go, is, they're all like, well, where's all the kids? And he's like, I don't know where they're at. It's past party time. And 
all I know is they were headed to a cave, and so the parents go, and here's all these bicycles at the entrance of the cave. And then they realize their kids are trapped in this cave. And they're deep, deep, deep into the cave. And if you remember the story, it took like professional divers to come in and kind of navigate themselves through these narrow tunnels about lost it just watching what they had to swim through. I'm like, I just can't watch this. I feel freaked out laying in my bed. Things are just too tight right now. And so they're making their way with this cable, trying to get back to these kids. They eventually do. But in the midst of all these, these parents have no clue really what's going on outside of their kids are trapped. And they're desperate, right? Is my kid alive? They finally find the kids and they send word back. The kids are alive. And then it's like, how do we get them out? And the it just reminded me in that, that movie of this story of like desperation of a parent who is standing on the outside of the cave knowing that the life of their child is at stake inside the cave and there's nothing that they can do. And I think it took them like 17 days or something to get, get these kids out um, eventually. And so the story of absolute desperation of a parent who's watching this child suffer and out, out of desperation he brings his child to Jesus. Remember, crowds, right? These crowds have been telling the story of Jesus who heals and rescues and delivers and blind that see and those who are unable to talk that suddenly have a voice and those who are unable to hear can suddenly hear and the lame are walking. And so this exhausted, desperate father brings his son to the disciples of Jesus who are unable to help. Unable to help in his most desperate hour. But Jesus is. Jesus is able to help. Verse 19. And he answered them, this is Jesus talking, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear you? Bring him to me. You hear frustration in Jesus' words here. Faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? Now, scholars differ on who Jesus is addressing here, this faithless generation. Maybe it's a little bit of all three groups. Like, how long are the crowds going to gather looking for miracles but refusing to believe? How long are the religious leaders going to harass Him, question Him? How long are the disciples going to miss the point and continually pursue their own agenda? You hear this kind of frustration in Jesus as He longs for that final stage. He longs for recreation. He longs for the restoration of all things. We've seen this reaction of Jesus multiple times in Mark's story that there's this kind of deep-seated sigh that we see regarding Jesus that He's longing for that stage of recreation that we anticipate. Now, we need to note right here that Jesus had provided the disciples the authority to cast out demons. If we were to back up in the story, if you remember, he sent them out with the power and the ability to cast out demons, but here they fail. Later, Jesus rebukes them for failing to look prayerfully to God. So this hurting father in desperate need has brought his battered son to them, and they have failed him. Listen. They have failed him, but they do have time to squabble with the religious. They failed to meet the need of the hurting, but they got time for religious arguing. 
the story here, right? There's a narrative. They're squabbling with the religious while the hurting are all around them. Not too far off of kind of the modern church. We have a lot of time to fight and argue about things in church life while there's a hurting world watching and in need. That's why we want to stay focused on what's important, right? Keep the, if you've been around city church, keep the center circles the center circle thing. Keep the closed-handed issues closed-handed and let everything else be very open-handed and focus on how do we get the gospel to the hurting. So, Jesus, bring him to me. He says, verse 20, They brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, this common reaction of the demon, immediately, immediately, there's the urgency again, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Bring him to me, Jesus says. And right before the very eyes of Jesus, the demon violently convulses the boy and slams him to the ground. How long, how long have you been experiencing this, Jesus asked. I, I like that Jesus says to him, tell me, tell me your story. Tell me how long this has been going on. I love how he invites the Father to speak his heart here. He's full of compassion. Jesus says, tell me, tell me how long this has been going on. Let me hear your story what a Savior we have that cares about the depth of our stories and how long we've been going through stuff. And some of you have been going through some stuff for a long time. And Jesus says, tell me, tell me your story. How long, how long have you been facing this? How long have you been going through this depression? How long have you been struggling in your marriage? How long has this addiction had a grip on you? Like, tell me your story because he's full of Compassion. From childhood, this desperate father replies, and it has often tried to destroy him. Like, imagine how this father lived life on edge. Whenever they're around fire, whenever they're around water, he never knows when something's going to take possession of his son and try to destroy him in the moment. Throw him into fire, throw him into water, trying to destroy his life. Like, what kind of life are you living as a parent on edge all the time, wondering when is the next event? Is this going to be the one that takes his life? Now, I want to pause right here to say something. I want to pause to note that the goal of the enemy is so brutally clear here to destroy children. Destroy children. That's the, that's, that's Satan. That's the enemy, is to destroy kids. Destroy them. He wants to take the life of the child. So what that means for you as a parent is his goal is to destroy your children. His goal is to destroy my children. It's only by the grace of God, right, that he intervenes. We'll see in a minute. Jesus has the opposite attitude about kids. 
But the enemy's goal, make no bones about it, be crystal clear, his goal is to destroy your kids. And we see that play out so clearly in modern culture, right? We see it play out in so many ways to take the minds, rob the hearts, rob the souls of our kids to destroy their lives before they're even born. Like he does everything he can do to destroy kids, he wants to do it. So keep that in mind. That's the goal of the enemy. So as you parent, right, and you're struggling with the reality of how do I raise my kids in this culture, understand that the enemy wants to destroy them. And so that should drive us as parents to our knees and an absolute dependence on the God who protects them and keeps them safe. Because his goal is to destroy them. This father cries, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. He longs for help, and he believes that the source of this help is the compassion of Jesus. Have compassion on me. And then Jesus calls him to faith. Verse 23, Jesus gives this response of like, he said to him, if you can, like all things are possible for one who believes. If, you, if I can, Jesus says, he invites this desperate father, believe in me. Believe in me. Believe in me. What Jesus is saying is, I am the one who can do this. Like, the who over the what. Am I believing in the who? In Jesus? Am I trusting in the who? And then verse 24, one of the most candid responses in all of Scripture, and we'll circle back to it. <coughs> this father replies to Jesus, and I love the honesty of his words. Immediately, there's our urgency in the story. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, and he said, I believe, kind of, right? I believe, help my unbelief. Again, this is one of the most candid verses in all of Scripture. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, this father confesses. And this, this father speaks for all of us. He speaks for all of us. He speaks for all of us who live life in the in-between. Between the here and now and the not yet. He speaks for all of us who live life in the in-between, between the faith, between, between the doubt. We want to believe, but we wrestle. We wrestle with the harsh reality of life. I want to trust, but I am overwhelmed by the brokenness. Right? I want to believe, but I am hurting from the pain. I want to trust and fully trust and depend, but man, the brokenness is weighing on my soul. Like he speaks for all of us, doesn't he? Life and the in between. And we're going to circle back to that in a moment. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. You see, Jesus is the opposite of Satan. He has 
mercy and compassion on the children. And in a culture where children were dismissed and pushed into the background and ignored and had no place, Jesus said, let the children come. Let them come. Let them come. I don't want to destroy them. I want to love them and be filled with compassion toward them. Let the children come. Let the children come is the attitude of Jesus. By the way, it should be the attitude of His people. Let the children come. Let the children come. Like We are in a place in our city that we're surrounded by kids of all types of kids of all nationalities and ages and races and our attitude as a church should be let the kids come we know like we spent money on carpet and paint and redoing our kids area now let the kids come and destroy it (laughs) you know what I mean by that right like the moment that this is more important to us than the little souls running around in it we've missed the point well i told you guys at the beginning when we get done with this thing and it's clean and awesome and attractive I want to reach a place where like trying to figure out how do we get permanent marker off the wall how do we replace this piece of carpet where there was a juice box spilled right we need to be having those conversations because kids are filling our rooms let them come Jesus says let the, the kids come Jesus has absolute authority over the demon, doesn't he? He commands this evil spirit to exit the boy's body once and for all, and it does. But again, note, not before assaulting this child one last time to the point that most of the crowd believe that he is dead. But Jesus, the author of life, tenderly takes the child by the hand and raises him up. The language is used here, resurrection language. Same language that's used of Jesus at the end of the story when he's raised back to life. Same word that's used here. Raised him up. He restores the child. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. The boy is hurting and wounded. But guess what? Jesus has handled hurting and wounded before. The boy is demon-possessed. But guess what? Jesus has handled demons before. The boy is left for dead. But guess what? Jesus has handled death before. So whatever it is in life you are facing, Jesus has handled it before. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. So this conversation happens away from the crowd as it often does with the disciples at the end of this. They bring Jesus into the house. They've entered the house. The disciples ask Him privately, like, Jesus, what was going on out there? Why could we not cast it out? And He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So later in the house, the disciples are confused. They're questioning their inability to cast out this demon, to which Jesus replies, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Interesting side note here, if you want to back up in the text, is there ever a moment where Jesus stops and prays before delivering this child? No. He doesn't stop and say, let me pray about this. What's the point? The point is, 
Jesus is not saying stop and say the right magical words in order for something to happen. The point is, Jesus lives a life of constant connection, constant communion with the Father. He lives with this posture of prayerful dependence. He is constantly in connection, fellowship, and and communion with the Heavenly Father. He's constantly depending upon Him, resting in Him, so that when these moments come, Jesus just acts because He's dependent on the Father. You see, prayer, what prayer does is it focuses and directs our faith to the right source. It gets us off of us. Prayer causes me to focus on the one who's capable of meeting the need. Prayer causes me to rely upon the creator of the world. Prayer gets his attention in the sense of I am resting in him in that moment. Prayer is directing your focus to the one who's capable of meeting the need, of providing. See, I'm like the disciples. Way too much. I'm eager to engage in arguments while hurting people surround me. I'm often beset by my own failures. Why could I not do this? Where's my ability? I'm way more dependent on my own abilities than the abilities of a sovereign God. I'm way more prone to be about finding the right technique than I am about praying. And the words of Jesus ring true for me, as they probably do you. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to stop trusting in what you can do and trust in what God can do. To which, if you're a lot like me, my response is, God, I want to believe. But help my unbelief. So let's end by discussing briefly this relationship between faith and doubt. Faith and doubt that we see so vivid in this text. This desperate father's confession reflects what it means, don't miss this, to exercise sincere faith in a broken world. To exercise sincere faith in a broken world. Like, this father is completely honest with Jesus, isn't he? Completely honest with Jesus. I'm at the end of my rope. I want to believe, but I have doubts. But it it is in admitting his limitations that he makes himself completely dependent upon Jesus. There's nothing more I can do here, the Father says. If I could, I would. I mean, it's my son for crying out loud. It's my flesh and blood, right? It's my boy. If I could do anything else, I would do it. But I can't. My faith has fallen short. And I'm going to be completely honest with you, Jesus, about it. You see, our faith is limited by our humanness. 
We are not God. We doubt. We question. We are uncertain. We worry. We fear. Listen, and that's okay because it is the limits of our faith that make us dependent on His faithfulness. My faith is limited to who I am and my humanness, but I serve a God who is unlimited. So faith is not the absence of doubt. Don't miss that. It's so important. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith is not having answers to every question that the hardships of this world create. The posture of sincere faith is, Jesus, my faith falls short. My faith falls short. So I am trusting in who you are. It's not the absence or removal of doubt. It is resting in who He is in spite of the doubt. True faith recognizes how small and inadequate my faith really is, but I am willing to risk everything on Jesus. That's faith. And the good news is that Jesus steps into that space between faith and doubt, that He is faithful when we are faithless, that He is constant when we struggle, that His faith never wavers, that He never doubted, that He trusts in a way that I am unable to trust. It is why ultimately our faith is not in the what or the why or the how. Our faith is in the who. Who He is. Faith is trusting in who Jesus is. In who Jesus is. Faith is trusting the reality of His goodness even when I can't see it. Faith is realigning my life to trust who Jesus is. Listen, even when it makes no sense to do so. Faith is realigning my life to say I will trust Jesus even when I can't wrap my mind around it. Even when I can't understand it. Even when the brokenness is overwhelming my soul. I will trust in who He is. I will actively choose to believe even when I doubt because of who He is. This is the posture of faith that is found throughout the biblical narrative. Faithful people wrestling with the harsh realities of life and struggling to trust in the sovereign control of a God amid the brokenness. And what we witness over and over and over again in the text are people who believe God enough to cry out to Him with their questions and struggles. They do not try and ignore it or downplay it, or suppress their doubts and questions. They express them to God. They express their doubts. They express their questions. They express their fears to God. And He hears and cares and acts. Like, you ever read through the Psalms and think, like, who wrote this stuff? Like, how does He talk to God this way? How does he get away with saying these things to God as he expresses his soul, right? He cries out with fears and doubts. And we read all these stories of the greats like Paul and 
David and we read how they wrestled with God and how they struggled with God because God is saying, bring them to me. Bring your questions. Bring your doubts. I'm big enough to take them. He is sovereign and good. So, what that means for you and I is that faith involves the courage to be honest about our doubts, to be honest about the struggle to trust God is good and to trust that God is working all things for our good. Faith is living in this unconditional openness with God. By the way, in case you missed the memo, He already knows. He already knows. He already knows and loves anyway. It's not that you bring your doubts to God and God's sitting in heaven like, I never knew you felt that way. I never knew you had those questions, those fears, those insecurities, those worries, those doubts. You caught me, you caught me off guard. I thought that your faith was 100% genuine and full and complete all the time. I'm, I have to tell you, I'm in a little shock right now. It's not the God we serve. We're open. We're unconditional openness to God because He already knows. He knows you better than you know you. You only think you doubt. God knows the levels of doubt that reside in your heart and soul that you haven't even gotten up here yet. And He loves us anyway. The courage to be honest with God. See, here's the gospel. When all human hope is exhausted, our hope is a person. Our hope is Jesus. He is our hope. So, listen, look at me. Some of you are sitting in this room and you're wondering, you're unsure if you can make it through this season. You're unsure if you can make it through this season. Some of you are unsure if you can make it through this year. Some of you are unsure if you can make it through this month. Some of you are not quite sure you can make it another week. There may be a few of you who are not sure you can make it today. And you are in desperate need for Jesus to intervene. Hear me. Hear me. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be there. Because if we pull it back, right? If we pull back the facade, and if we pull back the curtain of our soul, and if we pull back the image, and if we pull it all back, we are all in desperate need for Him to step in to our space. So hear me. Let's go back to the beginning of the message. He meets you right where you are. Right where you are. That's where He meets you. In your desperation, in your doubt, in your I'm not sure I can make it another season, year, month, day, moment. That's where He 
meets you. And here, here's the gospel promise. The gospel promise is not, hey, Jesus is going to meet you where you are and all your problems are going to go away. That's not the gospel promise. The gospel promise is not, hey, I'm going to meet you right where you are and you'll never have to worry or fear or doubt again. That's not the gospel promise. The gospel promise is not, I'm going to meet you right where you are and no more anxiety, no more depression, no more fear, no more worries, no more insecurities. That's not the gospel promise. The gospel promise is, I will meet you right where you are. And what you get is not necessarily freedom from problems, freedom from worries, freedom from anxieties and fears. What we get, listen, what we get is Jesus. We get Jesus. And that's all that matters in the end. The gospel draws people in need. And it invites us to put our hope in Jesus. Not in us. Not that our circumstances will change. Not in the temporary. Not in fixes. Not in solutions. We get Jesus. And I want to tell you, if I'm being really honest, in your desperate moment, Jesus will meet you right where you are, but it may not fix your marriage. You hear me? It may not fill your bank account full of money. It may not give you a new job. It may not make your children run to Jesus that are away from Him. It may not make your problems go away. As a matter of fact, it probably will not. Because it's not about temporary fixes and solutions and techniques and all those things. Jesus says, what you need only comes by what? Prayer. Absolute dependence on Me. You get Jesus. And so we trust in the one who is full of compassion and faithful and went all the way for you and is eager to meet you right where you are. So cry out to him. See this language over and over in this text? Cry out to him. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to him wherever you are. So we're going to end with something a little different than we normally do. I want you to read a prayer with me. This is the Northumbria community. I don't want to get into explaining what that is. It's a group of um, people from all types of denominations that have this, this um, group. This more It's primarily in Europe, and uh, they offer a lot of prayers that remind us of the beauty of the gospel. And I came across this one this week, and I thought it was so appropriate for this message that I just wanted us to read this prayer together um, as a church. May this be our heart's cry that flows out of this text. So we're going to put it up on the screen for you, I think. We're not going to put it up on the screen for you. I'm just going to read it to you. We'll post this online so that you can have it after okay so here is the 
Northumbria Community Evening Prayer. Lord, you have always given bread for the coming day. And though I am poor, today I believe. Lord, you have always given strength for the coming day. And though I am weak, today I believe. Lord, you have always given peace for the coming day. And though I am of anxious heart, today I believe. Lord, you have always kept me safe in trials, and now, tired as I am today, I believe. Lord, you have always marked the road for the coming day, and though it may be hidden from me today, I believe. Lord, you have always lightened this darkness of mine, and though the night is here today, I believe. Lord, you have always spoken when time was ripe, and though you may be silent now, today, I believe. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's bow our heads for prayer.